Perhaps the most consequential event that takes place in Parshas Chukas is Hashem's pronouncement that Moshe and Aaron will not go into Eretz Yisrael, they will not lead the Jewish people into the land of Israel. And therefore, the question, the question that occupies almost all of the Mepharshim's attention is, why not? What was Moshe's sin? What did he do that was so bad that deserved such a consequential and serious punishment? The story which precedes this pronouncement is in the beginning of Parachof, the Sefer Bamidbar, the first 13 Sukkim. And the context is that after the death of Miriam, the people rise up to complain about a lack of water. Hashem instructs Moshe to take his mateh, his staff, gather the people to speak to the rock, and it will give forth water. Moshe gathers all the people, and he says, Shimona Hamorim, listen up, O you rebellious ones, from this rock can we bring water? And then, Vayarem Moshe es Yado, Vayach es He lifts up his hand, and he hits the rock two times, lots of water comes out. Immediately afterwards, Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, Ya'an since you do not believe in me to sanctify me, to sanctify my name in front of the Jewish people, therefore you will not lead the people into the land of Israel. The simple wording of the text in our Parsha, as well as three other times, twice later in Bamidbar and once in Sefer Devarim, all of those times explicitly confirm what is pretty explicit in our Parsha as well, that it is this incident at the May Mariva, as it's known, that is the reason why Moshe and Aaron don't go into Eretz Yisrael. While there is a minority view that gives a completely different explanation, because of these psukim, the overwhelming majority of Rishonim do locate this episode as being the basis for the punishment. Nevertheless, even if it is in this incident, the actual sin still remains shrouded in mystery and subject to a major, major debate. There are numerous, numerous interpretations offered by the Mepharshim, but we will share just the three perhaps most famous and well-known of the interpretations. The first and the most well-known interpretation is that of Rashi, based on earlier sources in Chazal. Rashi says Moshe's sin was that he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Hashem explicitly commanded him to speak to the rock, and Moshe made a mistake and hit the rock. Different Mepharshim who go with Rashi's interpretation explain why Moshe could have made that mistake. But suffice it to say, according to Rashi and opinions in Chazal, this was the basis of his error. This is the basis of his sin. And as Rashi explains, the consequence or the seriousness of this is because had Moshe merely spoken to the rock and the rock then given forth water, the people would have been able to learn from this and said, just like a rock that does not hear, that does not speak, that does not need sustenance, and even it listens to God's word, so all the more so, Kavachomer, we must listen to God's word. And that, the idea that you have to really listen to what Hashem says, that was an opportunity that was lost when Moshe chose to hit the rock instead of speak to the rock. That is Rashi's interpretation. And that is why, according to Rashi and others, Moshe and Aaron, I guess, as the uh, silent assistant, are punished. The Rambam, in his well-known ethical commentary and the introduction to Perak Yavos, known as the Shmona Prakim, in the fourth chapter, Perak Dalid, the Rambam gives it an entirely different explanation. And the Rambam says this is an example of inappropriate midos. That is to say, Moshe's real sin, the real reason he's punished, is because he got angry at the people. Shimona Hamarim, he screamed at them, listen to me, O rebellious ones, why did he have to scream at them? Moshe, Hashem didn't tell him to scream at them. There's no evidence in the Pesach that Hashem was angry. Moshe decided after Hashem told him to speak to the rock, 
instead of just speaking and even then hitting the rock, which is not what the Rambam considers the main issue, but Moshe on his own seems to lose his temper and screams at the people. Shimon HaMarim. Says the Rambam, anger is a terrible midah in general, but in this case it was particularly bad. First of all, because he's a leader, so he's setting a bad example. Plus also, it might imply that if Moshe is angry, it must be that Hashem is angry. But as I mentioned, there is nowhere, says the Rambam, in the actual text here, that Hashem is angry. We have many other examples of Hashem expressing his anger about the Jewish people to Moshe, but not in this story. And therefore, it is Moshe's anger that is the root of the sin and why he deserved this punishment. That is the second interpretation of the Rambam. The third interpretation is that of the Ramban. Ramban quotes both of these aforementioned perushim and rejects them both. Rashi, he says, can't be right, because after all, Moshe is told by Hashem to take his matet. He is told to speak to the rock, but he's also told to take the matet. And the Ramban thinks it's very reasonable to assume that Moshe was supposed to speak and hit the rock. Who said he wasn't supposed to hit the rock? And therefore he rejects Rashi, because if he was not supposed to hit the rock, why would Hashem have told him to take the matet in the first place? If he was told to take the staff, Mestama, presumably he was supposed to actually hit the rock. Secondly, he rejects the Rambam as well. After all, while it's true that uh, the Torah itself never uh, mentions that Hashem was upset about Moshe's anger, but we can certainly presume that they were ungrateful yet another time. Why should we assume that Hashem wasn't angry? And therefore, Moshe was perhaps just channeling Hashem's anger. So he doesn't like that explanation either. Rather, says the Ramban, <coughs> what he thinks is the correct explanation is one from Rabbeinu Hananel, who points out that right after that statement of Shimon HaMarim, and right before he actually hit the rock, Moshe says, Hamin From this rock can we bring forth water. We notsimaim, implying that it was they, Moshe and Aaron, who had the ability who would be taking out the, the water from the rock. It should have said, quotes the Ramban, Yotsimaim, will he be able to, will HaKadosh Baruch Hu be able to bring out water? But by saying notsimaim, they were perhaps even by accident and incidentally, but nevertheless, it appeared through their language that they were looking to take credit for the water coming out, and that was the ultimate mistake. The Ramban there interprets, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu then says, Yan You didn't create a Kiddush Hashem, you didn't sanctify a name, meaning not only did you not instill belief in me by giving me the credit, but worse than that, by you seeming to take credit yourself, you undermined me, with your word. So we have three possible interpretations. Either they hit the rock, or they got angry, or it looks like they were taking credit for themselves. Nevertheless, as Ramban himself says, this, and especially the severe punishment, remains one of the great mysteries of the entire Torah. Parshas Chukas includes the tragic deaths and passing of both Miriam and Aharon. And the Gemara and Moed Kutten talks about both of these deaths, the pathing of both of these tzaddikim, when the Gemara asks, why is the death of Miriam, Nismacha, why is it juxtaposed to the laws of Paraduma? And the Gemara answers that just like the Paraduma is Mechaperes, it brings atonement, so too Misas Tzadikim, the death of the righteous, in this case Miriam, will also bring atonement. And the Gemara also asks the same exact question with the death of Aaron in our Parsha. Why is the death of Aaron, Nismacha, why is it juxtaposed to a Parsha, to a selection in the Torah that discusses the Big Day Kahuna, the close of the Kohen? And the Gemara answers, similarly, just like the Big Day Kahuna bring Kapara, the Kohanim can only do their service in the base of Migdash when they're wearing their special Bigadim, the Big Day Kahuna, 
and therefore the big day kahuna are necessary for kapara. So too, just like the big day kahuna cannot achieve kapara, so too again, misa sadikim, the death of the righteous. In this case, our own brings kapara. So we have the same principle idea of misa sadikim mechaper, the death of the righteous brings atonement, and we have two different examples with two different models or metaphors for this idea, respectively the paraduma and the big day kahuna. Rav Kook in a sefer called Midbar Shur, which if memory serves is a collection of his Devei Torah that he delivered in a small stage in the early part of his rabbinic career when he was in Switzerland. It's an early stage of his uh, life, way before he became the famous Rav Kook. But in that beautiful sefer Midbar Shur, he addresses this Gemara, this episode in our Parsha, and he asks two questions. One very fundamental, one less so, but still very interesting. The fundamental question is, how does this whole idea of misa tzaddikim mechaper work? What does it mean to say that because a tzaddik, a righteous person died, therefore other people, the entire generation perhaps even, gets atonement? There is an idea that death itself is a kapara, and that's not exactly easy to understand either, but at least that means that the actual person, the man or the woman who died, so their death is some form of a kapara for them. But how is the death of one person, in this case a tzaddik, whether it's Miriam or our own or any other tzaddik, how does that achieve kapara for other people, let alone the nation as a whole or an entire generation? That is a very fundamental question that needs to be understood if we have any idea of what this concept is. The second question asks Rav Cook is not as broad and as fundamental, but still quite interesting, which is if we're going to make that point, why does the Gemara need two different stories and two different models to make that point? Right? It's the same point in both parts of the Gemara, so why do we repeat it, but once using the Paraduma as the model, and the second time using the priestly clothing, the Big Day Kahuna as a model? It seems to be redundant. Why was it necessary for two different things? So in order to address this, Rav Cook posits the following theory. How does Misa Tzadikim work? And even though a question like that could easily be answered in a somewhat mystical vein, and Rav Kook was certainly uh, attracted to mystical ideas, in this case he gives a very non-mystical answer, one that I think is easily accessible to all of us. Says Rav Kook, the way Misa Tzadikim works is that we become aware of many of the attributes and accomplishments of the Tzadik, and that inspires us to emulate them. We are inspired, there's a certain moral awakening we're inspired and we try to live up to and emulate the tzaddik's attributes. That could happen in the tzaddik's lifetime too, but very often there are many aspects of the tzaddik of any great person's uh, accomplishments which are hidden from public view, sometimes coincidentally, and very often by design. The person is tzanua, they're private, they're modest, and it's only after the death at the shiva, at the funeral, hespedim, at other articles we read, books of tribute we read, biographies, and then after the tzaddik dies, we learn about that person and we can get inspired to try to emulate their attributes. Cesar of Cook, if we, if, it's, it's not a guarantee, it's not automatic when the tzaddik dies, we're all forgiven. If we'll be inspired and learn and emulate and grow from learning about the tzaddik after his or her death, then that achieves a certain level of kapara. That's spiritually edifying and redeeming. That's point number one that addresses the fundamental question. Then Rav Cook, in addressing the second question, points out that if we think about it, every tzaddik, every great person's accomplishments really could be categorized into two broad categories. One are the type of things which any one of us, in theory at least, could emulate and could really achieve. If we worked hard enough, if we were disciplined enough, if we sacrificed enough, if we cared enough, then in theory we could also accomplish the same great things that the, these great people accomplished. That could certainly be in the realm of Benam Lachavero, generally interpersonal relationships, chesed, kindness, doing for others, 
even davening to some extent, what's stopping any one of us from being great daveners? We just have to care enough and work hard enough and try hard enough and eventually probably will come. So, says Rav Kook, those are things which we learn about the tzaddik and we can truly be inspired and hopefully then emulate. But there's a second category of accomplishments that many of these great, great people have had over our time in history. And those are things which are frankly beyond what any person could really accomplish if we haven't given the same natural gifts and blessings from Hashem that the tzaddik, that the great person was given. To the credit of the tzaddik, they have taken advantage of and utilized and developed their natural gifts. But if it wouldn't have been for the natural gifts, there's no way even they could have accomplished it. No matter no amount of hard work or uh, effort could sacrifice, could excuse me, could make up for a lack of that natural ability. Certain incredible, unbelievably near photographic memories or other brilliant intellectual abilities. If you don't have it, you just don't got it, and there's no way you can emulate it. So how can you, in that case? Try to learn from the tzaddik about those aspects. Says Rav Cook, you can't do it yourself if you weren't given those gifts. What you can do is encourage our leaders, our great people who have been given those gifts to follow. And says Rav Cook, I guess with charity and other things, we can support people who will hopefully then have the training and the ability to achieve those things if they have been given those gifts. So the first thing we can actually do ourselves. The second category we can admire and we can help support and role model for other people who actually have the ability. Says Rav Cook, it's these two categories which are parallel to the two examples in the Gemara. Because the Paraduma, for all of its mystical mystery, it works on anybody, one person at a time, man or woman, doesn't matter, coin lave, Yisrael, what shave it you're from, your tame, you sprinkle the ashes, you can get tahara, you can get kapara, so too, that's the first aspect of the tzaddik, anybody can achieve the same thing. But when it comes to the Kohanim, only a Kohen wears the clothing can achieve kapara. We all benefit from the Kohen, so too, that's the second category of things which we can't do, but other people, if we support them, can help us. This is the statute of the Torah, which Hashem, our Lord, commanded, saying, Take for you a perfectly red, unblemished cow. And of course, the Psukim go on to describe in further detail the mitzvah and the ritual of the para aduma, the red heifer, the special ceremony which allows someone who had become Tamei Mace, contaminated ritually because of contact in one way or another with a dead body, allows that person to become Tahor, allows that person to become purified. We know that Chazal, in numerous places, referred to Paraduma, picking up on the word that is at the outset of the Pasuk we just read, that Paraduma is the quintessential chok, the quintessential example of a mitzvah in which the, the reason for that mitzvah is unrevealed, and largely inaccessible to the human mind. And yet, despite that fact, Rashi, here, in our Parsha, a little bit later on in the Perak, Perak Yotes, Pasuch of Bez, in two different comments, quotes from different statements in Chazal and the Medrash, which in fact does give rational reasons, or at least symbolic explanations, for the mitzvah and the ritual of Paraduma. For example, initially Rashi quotes a very famous Medrash, that explains why the ceremony, why the mitzvah is done specifically with a para, a mature mother cow. And the answer is because it is on some deeper symbolic level considered an atonement for the Jewish people's sin of the chet ha'egel, the sin of the golden calf. And therefore, the egel, the calf, being a baby cow, 
has its mess, as it were, in the metaphor of the Medrash, cleaned up by the mother, by the Paraduma. Says the Medrash, let the mother come and clean up the mess of the child. So that is speaking more broadly about why there is a cow chosen as part of the ritual. But Rashi, later on in that same Pasuk, brings another Medrash, which explains the symbolic meaning behind all of the specific and detailed components of the ceremony. The Eitz the Ezov, Ushni Tolas, Cedarwood, Hyssop, and the Crimson String, which are all used along with the ashes of the Paraduma. If that's the case, if we have all these reasons and these different explanations from Chazal quoted by Rashi, <clears throat> begs the question, why do Chazal view this as the Achok, let alone the quintessential example of a chok. In the classic Sefer of Drush and Musr, the Be'er Yosef, he explains that, in fact, the specific aspect of the Paraduma, which made this so inexplicable and indecipherable to the human mind, is the fact that it is at the same time Matar the Tmeim and Matame the Tahorim. Just as the ashes of the Red heifer are purifying a person who had become Tomei, the Kohen who is executing that ritual and helping the Tomei person become Tahor, he himself becomes Tomei. In other words, at the very same time that a Tomei person is becoming Tahor, the Kohen who is Tahor is becoming Tomei. And this is obviously beyond anything that any rational person could understand. How could the very same process, the very same ingredients, the very same ritual simultaneously make one person Tameh while making the other person Tahor. In fact, says the Ber Yosef, this is what is referred to when Shlomo Melech says in Kohelis in Perik Zayin, Amarti ech kama many. I said I'll make myself wise and intelligent and knowledgeable. I'll understand Paraduma. And nevertheless, many. it's distant from me. I simply cannot understand it. It's this very aspect which is so inexplicable. However, says the Ber Yosef, the answer to this question of why we would have such a complicated ritual that seems to be so contradictory and so inexplicable is because the Torah wants us to habituate ourselves to do mitzvos even when we don't understand the reasons, even when they seem to make no sense whatsoever and to be completely inconsistent and completely against what we would have expected rationally or reasonably. Why does the Torah want us to have paraduma? as the paradigm, but really other such mitzvos, the whole category of chukim, says the Be'er Yosef, because by doing mitzvos, which we don't seem to understand, the Torah is trying to habituate ourselves so that we can understand as we go through life, when we experience life events that don't seem to make sense, that we aren't thrown by those. If we're used to things in our mitzvah and ritual life not always making sense, says the Be'er Yosef, we'll be more ready and readily willing to accept life events that don't seem to make sense. We won't be, won't be thrown by those, and we won't come to question God in an inappropriate way. In other words, through this process, we reinforce the belief that we cannot fully understand the ways of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world. And therefore, he says, every time a person has to use the ashes of the Paraduma to purify himself or his kalim, he is reinforcing this belief. As the Rambam very, famous, very famously noted in the Parish HaMishnayos, that the more you do something, the more you repeat various actions that reinforces the values on the person. The more you have to benefit from and use the ashes of the paraduma, the more it reminds you and reinforces this idea 
that we don't need to understand everything. This perhaps explains why the Sifrei on Korach, as well as Arashi and Masecha Sota, commenting on the Apostolic in Tehillim, says, Zemiros hayuli chukecha bebeis migurai. That David Melech says, your statutes were to me as songs during my sojourns, during my travels. Says the Medrash, not when everything was good, Bashalva, rather migurai, when I was hiding out in the cave, running away from Shaul. And the Ber Yosef explains so powerfully and so beautifully in light of his previous insight. That is to say, he explains when David Melech was running for his life, it would only have been natural and reasonable for him to question the fairness of it all. How could it be that the king, Shaul, his father-in-law, someone who was so loyal to, accused him of being a traitor, was trying to kill him? So how did David, despite all these obvious challenges, how did he avoid inappropriate questioning of Hashem? So we see from the Medr, says the Ber Yosef, he reflected on Chukei HaTorah. He got strength from that. And he said to himself, just like the Chukei are beyond my understanding, so too is Darke Hashem in the ways of the world in Hashkacha. And this, he says, is the Musr that we should take from the mitzvah of Para Aduma. The whole story is somewhat surprising, unexpected, and even bordering on bizarre. The people are complaining to Moshe about their situation. Well, that's not surprising. That's unfortunately already commonplace. But they're complaining. Hashem gets furious at them. And he sends poisonous snakes. Poisonous snakes who are biting and therefore endangering the lives, killing multitudes of the Jews, v'yamas amrav me'yisrael, from these poisonous snakes, the nechashim ha'srafim, Moshe davens to Hashem for salvation, and the salvation, the Yeshua that Hashem sends, is by telling Moshe to make an image of, of all things, a snake. And he should place that on a pole that they should look up to. The Pasuk subsequently tells us that Moshe chose to make that out of a copper, nachash nechoshes, so they have this copper snake that's put on a pole, and Hashem tells Moshe, who tells the people, anyone who looks at that, anyone who looks at this will live. So Moshe does it, he makes the copper snake, he puts it on the pole, and in fact, anyone who looked at it was saved, survived. This is the end of the Chamishi Aliyah, that's the story that ends the Chamishi Aliyah in Chukas. The whole thing is just, you know, so surprising. Again, if almost bizarre, poisonous snakes, copper snakes. What is going on? So another question, a more basic question, is asked by Chazal, and Rashi actually quotes it. It's a mission in Masechus Rosh Hashanah. That's the primary source. I mean, what's going on? Hashem is punishing them. Hashem could punish them directly. And Hashem could certainly revive them and save them and heal them directly. Why does Hashem use this medium of poisonous snakes and then copper snakes? It's not the snake. The snake has no powers to really give life or death. Rather, says the mission, of course not. When the Jews would look up towards the pole, their eyes were directed towards the Shemayim. They're looking up. They would hopefully then see past the snake they would see up to Shemaim, they would do tshuva, they would daven to Hashem, mishabdenes libam la'avien shemaim, they would humble themselves, they would bind their hearts to Hashem, and that's why Hayu Misrapin says the Mishnah, and that's why they were ultimately healed. So, in essence, what comes out according to Chazal, Rashi quotes this from the Mishnah, is that this copper snake on a pole was really a method, a means of getting the people to turn their eyes, and more importantly, their hearts, to 
humble themselves and look toward Shamayim and recommit to Hashem to do tshuva for their past complaints. This is the Mishnah that Rashi quotes. Comes along the Sfas Emes in the year Tafresh Lamites 56.39 and he asks a very basic question. If really it's all about Hashem, all about humbling yourself and committing to Hashem and Shamayim, which of course it has to be, no one really thinks it's a copper snake. We don't believe in that kind of witch magic. Says the Sfasemis, if that's the case, so then why not just have the people look up straight to Shamayim? Why not go directly to the source? Why do they have to go through this medium of looking at a Nachash Nachoshes, a copper snake? Bypass that, avoid all confusion, go directly straight to the source. Why doesn't Hashem just tell Moshe to tell the people to look up to Shamayim, to do tshuva to David, and then he'll heal them? What a basic and fantastic question that the Sfasemis asks. And he explains using a comment of the Ramban. The Ramban himself makes a brief comment here. Actually, it's a long piece, but the Sfasemis takes out a brief comment of the Ramban, who adds the following, that Hashem, he says, generally has a preference, and this is a good example of it, says Ramban, to do a nes betoch nes. If Hashem is anyway going to break the rules of nature and do something out of the bounds of nature, what you and I call a nes, a miracle, Hashem often does it, prefers to do it, as a miracle within a miracle, a nes betoch nes. How so? Not only is some copper or whatever appearing to uh, heal the people, clearly looks like a miracle, That's that, that was not even a recognized medicine in the time of the desert, that was clearly miraculous, but of all things, the image that was uh, beat into this copper plate that was held up was, of all things, a snake. The very thing that had made them sick, that had endangered them. The venomous, deadly snake, that was what, in end, it's the image of that on the copper uh, sign on the post, that's what was healing them. That's a double nace, says the Ramban. Not only is there some copper symbolism thing seeming to heal them, but of all things, it's the copper uh, engraving of the very thing that made them sick. Wasn't a coincidence, says Ramban, but rather it was specifically, intentionally, the snake itself, the very thing that had gotten them sick, was now being the source of their healing. What is going on? Why is that important? So the Sfasemis explains that that's the deeper idea. At least this is how he understands the Ramban. That whatever healing power there was from looking at the copper snake, the fact that it was a snake of all things, communicated the message to the people that it was really, really Hashem who was healing you. Hashem could have told Moshe to make an engraving of a cluster of grapes or of a different kind of animal or who knows what. And then it would have, hopefully they would have realized it wasn't that, it was Hashem. But the fact that of all things it was the snake, the very thing that they associated with their sickness, the fact that their lives were at risk, that they were dying from this burning, poisonous sensation that from the bite of the snake, and now that very snake, an image of that, that's what they're looking at to heal them, that made it even more clear, says the Sfas Emes, that it was never the snake, not the real snake, not the image of the snake, it was never the snake. It's really Hashem who's healing you. Hashem who punished you because you complained, because you sinned, and Hashem who's punishing, who's, who's saving you, who's healing you. The larger message, says the Sfas Emes, is that when you are looking at, in this case, or thinking about or doing physical things, gashmi things, whether it's medicine, in this case, healing power, or parnasa, or anything else, Remember, it's really from Hashem. By seeing that it's the same thing that made them sick, that was now healing them, they realized that it was never the snake, as much as HaKadosh Baruch Hu guiding nature, guiding Teva. Nature is a mask, hiding the true identity, 
The fact that the author of everything is really HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But it requires, as the Mishnah said, Histaklus. The Mishnah said, Mistaklin Kapaimala. Not just to glance, but to truly look, to look carefully, to look deeply. And then we can see beyond the mask that the deep look, the essence, that everything is truly from Hashem. Chazal, in a number of places, including the Medrash in Koheles Rabbah and Parsha Zion, tell us that Shlomo HaMelech was able to understand the reasons behind every one of the mitzvos, except for Parah Aduma, about which he said, paraphrasing the Pasuk from Koheles Rabbah, Amarti echkama vihi I thought I could even understand that, but it turned out it was too hard for me to understand, it was distant even from my mind. And this serves as the basis for the common assumption that Paraduma, as is revealed and described in our Parsha, is not just one of the mitzvos, which is hard or inaccessible for the human mind, but maybe the paradigmatic example of what we often refer to as a chok, mitzvos which don't seem to have any reason. The Gemara in Yuma, Handaf Samach Zayin, Amun Beis, commenting on and elaborating on the Pasuk in Vayikra, Perakir Ches, Pasuk Dalid, which describes as Mishpatai Ta'asuv, as Chukosai Tishmaru, Tishmaru, excuse me, that uh, we have both Chukim and Mishpatim. So the Gemara there, quoted by Rashi in Vayikra, tells us that there are two categories, broadly speaking, of mitzvos. Mishpatim, which are described as Devarim She'el Malei, if they had not been written in the Torah, it would have been worthy to have written them. It would be worthy to observe them even without them being written, because their logic and their morality is so obvious and self-evident. However, it says the Gemara in continuation, again quoted by Rashi, when it comes to the Chukim, those are things which, as Chazal say, Those are things which, whether it's our Yetzir Hara, the Satan, or other people such as non-Jews, will ridicule us, over them because they don't seem to make any sense whatsoever. So the Gemara and Rashi list a number of examples, but certainly if we return to the Medrash we began with, Paraduma is widely considered to be perhaps the most difficult to understand, the most inexplicable of all of the mitzvos. Uh, it's interesting, however, that um, it's not 100% clear, or at least 100% agreed upon, what that means in terms of the status of Chukim. Does that mean the Chukim have no reason whatsoever? Or do they have a reason, it's just that we can't understand it? So there does seem to be a view out there, at least among some possible opinions in Rishonim, maybe even some statements in Chazal, that Chukim have no reason, at least no reason that any human being could perhaps relate to at all. Uh, there is a comment of Rashi there in Vayikra and Perakutes, which seems to say this quite clearly, Chukim, these are the xeros of the king, which have no reason whatsoever. The Rambam, as well, as we'll see in more elaboration, more detail, the Rambam alludes to people, he's very critical of them, but the Rambam also alludes to people who believe that there are no reasons whatsoever uh, for the Chukim. It's not clear if he's referring to the statement in Rashi, perhaps of Sajigon, or maybe others, but there does seem to be that view. Uh, Ramban uh, cannot accept that it's even a possibility. And on that Pasuk in Vayikra and Perakites, after having quote Rashi, uh, the Ramban is quite clear that can't be that that's what 
Rashi means that there's no reason whatsoever. Rather, the Ramban suggests the famous idea that there's no obvious reason and that the reason that Hashem would give us such commands, like a king might give uh, his nation commands that they don't understand, is just to reinforce uh, their need to obey him and the obedience and the authority uh, that is conveyed by doing something for no other reason than, you know, ken mifakate, as they might say in the army, just following the orders of a commanding officer. So this idea, which perhaps is already explained or perhaps even debated by Rashi and Ramban, uh, gets its most full expression uh, in all of, I would say, Rishonim in the presentation of the Rambam, where he discusses this in Mor Nevuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed, in Chel Gimel, uh, primarily in Perak Chavav, although he does review and perhaps even embellish and expand on that slightly a few chapters later in Perak Lamed Aleph. A few of the highlights of the Rambam here just to round out uh, this discussion. As I mentioned, the Rambam does allude to the fact that some people out there seem to say that there are no reasons. However, the Rambam is quite adamant that the large majority in the mainstream and accepted view is, of course, there are reasons. Every single mitzvah says the Rambam has to have reasons. It has good purposes to help inculcate proper midos or deos, uh, beliefs or uh, habits and behaviors, or to remove bad habits, beliefs, or behaviors. And says the Rambam, there's no question this has to be the case. And he quotes numerous psukim which he thinks reinforce this idea. For example, as the Pasuk says in Devarim Perak Dalid, so here you see the Pasuk is saying both chukim and mashpatim. They're both righteous, they both make sense, they both are meaningful. Nevertheless, says the Ramam, as we've already seen, and the Ramam is very famous in his elaboration on this point, that mishpatim have reasons which are easy to apprehend, easy to see, but chukim are those mitzvahs which it's not so obvious. Uh, and one further proof text which he is very strongly in favor of the Rambam is in Dvaram Perak Lamed Beis, in which the Pasuk says, Kilo There's nothing that's empty, there's nothing that's you know, vain or purposeless, and Chazal say, and if it is, Reik, it's because of you. In other words, it's our human limitations, we don't understand certain things, perhaps Kilayim, certain laws of Kashros, Paraduma, but not that there is no reason, just that we simply can't understand it. However, the Rambam does add one final point, which is critical to his understanding, and this will be our last uh, point, and that is that he does quote a medrash in Bereshish Rabbah and Parsha Memdalad, which does seem to imply that mitzvos have no purpose, maybe maybe beyond chukim, any mitzvos. The medrash says, that the whole purpose of mitzvos is to purify us, in other words, just by authority. After all, says the medrash, why should Hashem care how you shecht the animal, the front of the neck or the back of the neck? The Ramam explains that that only has to do with the details. The Ramam's belief in the Ramam's position is that there may, no be, there may not be any reason for the details, the specifics of the mitzvah, like where you shecht, but the overall general principles of the mitzvah, every mitzvah, including shechita, has a reason, and just that the details perhaps not. But even chukim have reasons, says Ramam, whether we understand them or not.